Welcome, everybody, to the Wine Tech Insiders Podcast, episode 18. We're going to be talking about more supply chain issues, an ancient discovery, and Prince Charles's booze cruise. Um, <laughs> let's get going. Okay. Um, it, I just want to say one thing. We, we last uh, two weeks ago, we were on Shinery's podcast. Um, we tweeted about it. But if you uh, want to hear what we had to say, um, um, especially around selling wine, go to Outshinery um, and check it out. All right, um, more supply chain, chain worries. Um, first, Argentinian, Argentinian vineyards can't get bottles. Uh, they had a fire in Mendoza um, at a bottle factory. Um, and um, they've said, you know, we've, we've never lived through a shortage like this. Um, we have paper shortages in Napa um, because there's global paper shortage. And um, Sauvignon Blanc, um, for a number of reasons, might not even be on shelves this Christmas, although it might not be the best time, depending where you are in the world, to drink Sauvignon Blanc. Um, uh, <laughs> What do we think, Seb? Why don't you jump in? Um, uh, what's going on in the world? Uh, maybe have an overall view of this. Have you heard um, other issues with supply chains uh, issues? What's going on? Uh, look, I think that there's definitely a few um, a few angles to this. Uh, this is not just wine specific. Uh, of course, by now, everyone has heard of chip shortages. Everyone has heard of the ports being clogged up. Uh, and the biggest problem is that most of the economies around the world have underestimated how fast the, um, the, the consumption would resume. Um, so ultimately, supply chain issues are throughout everywhere. It's, it's bottles quite clearly in Argentina. Uh, but you're looking, look, we have um, a, a supplier in uh, in Italy who's basically saying cork is also becoming a bit of a challenge because of global change. Production is fluctuating. Um, this being said, if we have a look at cork specifically, uh, cork in the, in the 70s and 80s was very difficult to get in Australia or a good quality cork. And that led to the creation of the screw cap, the invention of the screw cap by, by Australians. Uh, and now I'm thinking, especially on the bottle front, uh, there has been a challenge with packaging in the wine industry. Right, so the bottle itself, the newer generations kind of really want a smaller format, kind of really want a good to go kind of format. So maybe there's an opportunity out of this. Um, it's yet to be seen, but I also do think that overall there's going to be supply, logistics, deliveries, sales to be delivered as well uh, for look for the next 12 to 18 plus months for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but we've been seeing a bit out at our channery and it's just very like challenging for wineries. And the, the biggest one we work with, they suddenly accept compromise that would have not been able even you know, six months ago. They're just like, okay, so we have this production, I'm making it up here, like of Cabernet Sauvignon, and we can't have enough glass to put all of it in there. Well, we're going to get two different bottle shapes, you know, and like suddenly like they're less precious. It's like a, a wine needs to bottle. It needs to get out of the barrel. And it's just like, so we have this bottle and this bottle and it's not going to be exactly the same market. And so it's just like, 
as a packaging designer by trade, like it's a bit like, oh, like this is not, hard. but at the same time, it's just like, you got to compromise and get the product like on the shelves and everything like that. So it's been very interesting to see, to see that and adaptability. And I think it's probably like something that just like, you know, sprung from like COVID, right? It's just, I think I've been a bit impressed how the webinaries have been able to just like, oh, that's another curveball. Let's, what do we do the most out of it? Uh, but I, I don't envy, yeah, I don't envy them or even like industries at large, like um, Seb was mentioning, just like seeing the port oh, yeah. and everything. Like it's just, because it seems a bit like climate change. It seems so out of what can we do about it, right? Like that's a bit uh, hopeless. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's it's tied back in, like you were saying, um, Laurie, about uh, COVID. I mean, the first thing that COVID did to the wine industry was uh, force it to digitalize because you couldn't go to trade shows anymore. You couldn't, um, yeah, you couldn't physically meet your suppliers like you could um, pre-COVID and the industry stepped up and switched to digital and um, now has you know, been quite successful with doing everything or a lot more things digitally than ever before. And um, so maybe that also helps other, everybody be in a flexible yeah. mindset that we've yeah. made it work and we're gonna continue to make it work. And, um, and uh, yeah, maybe there's some environmentally positive things that come out of this, that if you end up moving away from glass, which is arguably the, most mm -hmm. environmentally unfriendly format out there due to all of the logistics costs associated mm -hmm. with the heavy glass bottles. Um, and um, for a lot of entry-level wines, I mean, yeah. I'm going to get my hand slapped, but how many of those <laughs> entry-level wines actually, can you tell the difference that they were in a can or in a bag or in a bottle or a screw cap or a cork? Yeah. And um, if a consumer wants to drink and they see suddenly wines that are familiar to them, but just in a slightly different packaging, <gasps> How many, consumers are, how many consumers are actually going to care? And then, and actually then it'll be easier because, ah, oh, I don't have to worry about my, you know, a bottle breaking through the bag in my shopping bag. It's mm -hmm. just, it's a box and it's, if it, it's not going to bust. And I, I, you know, I used to live in uh, Scandinavia like I did both uh, Oslo and uh, Stockholm where bag in a box more for economical reason, because like alcohol is so expensive. There is uh, like a huge thing. I would say like, easily a third of their uh, government liquor stores are bag in a box but like some we're talking some nice wine bag in a box and we're talking fancy bag in a box again mm -hmm. as packaging yeah. there is foil embossing and each time like it's just like it was wonderful to purchase like this like you get used a bit to it because you look like a wino you know like just carrying like six liters of wine like home all at once um but at the same time it's like it's wonderful as an experience. It doesn't look cheap. Like just the perception of drinking bag in a box in Scandinavia is, is, if anything, you have a smart one, like, you know, compared to buying the glass bottle. So if you can come a bit more to the rest of the world, um, I'm all for it because I'm calling, I mean, calling, I mean, this right now from Canada and the options that we have for bag in a box are very low market like, like you don't really want to drink that but i think it's a, it's a missed opportunity so i'm curious to see that i'm curious to see that actually you That's, sound like okay. a snob i'm french i can be snob well i still i still like recall going to, to italy on holiday and going into the local um the local wine um wine outlet and you have your bottles that you can put in and then you get to the end and basically you pull up with a gas state like a gas a gas nozzle and being able to fill up your 
you know, your five gallon jug as if you were pumping, pumping gas. And, you know, it's, it's geared towards how, how you consume wine in the area. Um, and it, it works just like in Sweden or Scandinavia with, with bag it's, and it's, a, it's interesting because this also exists uh, in Quebec. I know that the SAQ um, over there, they have shops called SAQ Depot. And they basically buy wine in bulk and they allow consumers to come back with their own bottle and fill their own bottle. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if this means that Argentinian wine currently struggling with glass mm -hmm. might flow into new markets for these exact same reasons. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, also, in the last uh, uh, few weeks, um, there was a big discovery, a winery in Israel called, known as Vinum Gaztium, which was apparently famous in the literature at the time. Um, and they found it dates back um, 1,500 years and produced one of the finest white wines in the Mediterranean, about two to three million liters of wine a year. Jonathan, how big, how big is that as a winery? Where does that put... Well, I mean, if you, especially if you put it in context to back then, I mean, that was, they, it sounds like they were almost the, the gallo, the gallo of the, of the epoch, um, uh, taking care of, of the wine, of all the wine consumers. Um, so um, the, the production is even large by today's standards. Um, so absolutely. Maybe this gets back to, to Seb's idea of, or, or this idea that we had the gas tank or the big, uh, you know, just uh, we should go back yeah. to this, maybe big jars or something in the store. We can uh... minus the slave laborers, right? Like it's just <laughs> right. <laughs> like they were the I mean, fancy slaves. They were they were the they were the classes of slaves, like the wine working wineries were the fancy one. And I mean fancy, this you know, like they were and they were allowed to drink the must. So they would have a bit, they were the only slaves that could have a bit of the must and get a bit of a buzz. Uh, all the other slaves were not allowed alcohol in the, you know, Roman era and everything. Mm. Just little culture. I did like a, <laughs> with my team and Alchani, we did like an online Airbnb experience with an Italian guide from um, Napoli. And he explained to us like all like uh, he did his all like PhD on like winemaking and amphora in the Roman time. Uh, so that's how I know about it. Uh, that was, yeah, in the world of slave, that was. Um, a good one to be, even though it was grueling hours and a ton of work, but you get a buzz. So it's a lot of slaves about <laughs> buzz for 1 million liters of production. <laughs> and, and do we know, uh, I mean, the, the, the point, the interesting question here is with regards to that wine, we're talking hundreds and thousands of years ago, right? Mm -hmm. That wine being classified as fine wine. Do we have any indication as to how fine wine 3,000 years ago compared with today's fine wine? Was it comparable as, as a product in terms of quality or was it just fine for the day? So again, just from that uh, you know, learning experience, uh, it was very different wine. Uh, like first it was always spices and it was always double, like almost most likely always double fermented. So it's wine, it goes to like 12% or something like that. Then they put honey and spices to crank it up to like 15 to 16%. Uh, but fun story, like uh, Caesar, like uh, was a fan of white wine. So it's also like the, the fashion of the moment was 
what was the emperor drinking? Whoa, Caesar is drinking white wine. Then everybody's drinking white wine. It was like the influencer, <laughs> if you will, uh, of the time. But I think from what I understood, it was really hard to compare because it's, it's more like almost sweet, it's sweet. It's delicious. Like we did a couple of like cocktails and everything like that. It's very boozy. And also it's never, <laughs> and it's never cold, right? Like it's just like the coldest steaks. That's also the steak they didn't have obviously fridges and everything. So it's, there's a lot of different parameters as well, even in the degustation of it. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and for, for reference, two to three, uh, three million liters uh, is roughly about what, 300 and 30,000, 375,000 cases of wine. Uh, so when we're, when we're saying today that a vast majority of producers, 94 to 97%, uh, producing less than about 25,000 cases, uh, then 300,000 cases is huge. And the gallows are definitely in, in a million cases. So it's definitely a world apart. Yeah. Well, um, while we're looking back uh, to the to this era, one of the things that um, my wife and I found out on a tour of Munich um, is that um, in in this era, it was a major a major trading trading center for two products: salt coming over from Salzburg in Austria, and wine. Wine. So there was a salt street and the wine street cross the salt street and so you'd come into munich to do your salt trading and you'd be plied with uh plied with wine that's interesting and look it's, it's also i think it's part of the overall appeal of the product it's it's existed for millenniums uh, and it can be as simple and as uh, untouched and as natural as possible or now with techniques that we've developed can be manipulated and made into something different mm -hmm. um so yeah fascinating fascinating i just don't know enough about the history of winemaking <laughs> uh, well after we uh talked a few uh podcasts ago about le mans running on um a bunch of cars in le mans running on wine leftovers we learned that prince charles has an austin martin that is running off of surplus English white wine. Laurie, do you think it's because he doesn't like the English white wine <laughs> or does he just have so much of it being a prince that it just kind of gets thrown into the car um, so he can drive home after the party? Or... I'll, I'll, I'll go with a second. Uh... <laughs> But uh, no, like, it's just like interesting. I mean, I think he has a lot of carbon footprint to make up for. So sure, he can run in Aston Martin <laughs> with uh, English wine. Um, yeah, I think it's just, um, like, it's just like more like a funnier side. Like the positive side, a bit like Le Mans uh, race that we talked about. It's just, you know, it was front page-ish uh, on the BBC website and everything. Like, again, it just... What I like about this is that it just opened the conversation that there, there is alternative to, you know, fossil fuel. Like, like, it's just like, is white wine, English wine the way to go? Probably not, but um, just opening up, like there's, there's more options out there. So I guess I, I like him for suggesting there are other things, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it could be, uh, sorry, gotcha. What I was going to say, the, and I mean, it, it also ties back into like, even during the, the, the darker days of the, of the pandemic, I mean, there is excess wine out there and not every wine makes it from, from the vine into somebody's glass. There is loss along the way or surplus that just, 
ages out and like in, in France being turning the wine into um, hand sanitizer. Um, so it is, it's more showing that you shouldn't, I mean, it's not, I shouldn't say more showing, but it's another example of taking something that the original purpose is no longer, uh, it's no longer, yeah, uh, fit for the original purpose, but instead of just dumping it down the drain, there is something else you can do with it. And whether it's hand sanitizer or fuel for your, for your, uh, uh bioethanol car, um, yeah, you can, there's usually a purpose for everything. Well, I think in the Netherlands and in Norway, over 50% of new cars were electric. And there are a lot of European cities that are not allowing, um, you know, diesel or, or high emission cars. Maybe this is a way for the wealthy um, collectors of old cars <laughs> to still keep them running in some kind of way that will be acceptable, you know, for society when 90% of cars are electric. Um it could be, and it could be a source of revenue or, you know, something for wineries. We'll see. We'll see. I'm, okay, I'm well, reading really quickly that bioethanol is 90% alcohol. Is that completely off? Oh, for fireplace. Bioethanol bio for, for bio fireplace is 90% alcohol. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious as to how do you take wine? How do you transform it to actually fuel a car? <laughs> I mean, hand sanitizer would have to be distilled pretty extensively just to get the alcohol volume out. Mm -hmm. But I don't know about the uh, the bioethanol kind of thing. But I agree. I absolutely agree with Laurie. Anything to fucking bring the discussion out away from uh, fossil fuel. I'm 100% behind it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Even if even if it's just a marketing gimmick and a fucking first world problem, absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again, our insiders, Laurie from Outshinery, Seb from Trolley, and Jonathan from Bottle Books. Um, that was episode eighteen. We'll see you all again in a few weeks. Nice one. Good Bye. seeing you guys. Catch you later. Bye. 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 Bye.